Then let's begin. Welcome to the BAD special invited lecture. Today I'm very proud that we have a Nobel laureate speaking to us. Professor Banerjee, PAD is the oldest think tank in Pakistan and it has a long reputation with many people, including people from Harvard, Gary, Harry Johnson, Keith Griffin, etc., participating, participating, and as well as actively encouraging PAD to develop. And from India, PN Srinivasan, <clears throat> and many other people. But it is an especial honor to have you here, um, Professor Banerjee. One, because, not because of you, but one, because you won, obviously, Nobel laureate. You're right, you're probably one of the biggest stars in the profession right now. But for us, more importantly, you're from our Niger region, our neighboring country. Uh, so it's always a delight to have, um, you know, somebody from our part of the world win the Nobel and do so well. So we will welcome you as honorary Pakistan, honorary Indian. Thank honorary you. And everything. And you have the freedom to speak in Hindi, Urdu, English, whatever your choice is. But uh, before we begin, Professor Banerjee, I'd like Fahad Zulfakar, the young man who, who managed to persuade you to come here. It is his honor. So he will introduce you more formally, welcome you, and uh, um, give you the floor. Fahad, over yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Abhijit Banerjee studied economics at the University of Calcutta, Jawaharlal Nehru University, and Harvard University. Currently, Professor Banerjee is the Ford Foundation International Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In 2003, Professor Banerjee, Professor Esther Duflo, and Professor Sandeep Malinathan founded the Abdul Latif Yamin Poverty Action Lab, which is a research center supporting scientifically informed policy making to reduce global poverty. Professor Banerjee was awarded the 2019 Nobel Prize for Economics with Professor Duflo and Professor Michael Kremer for helping to develop an innovative experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. Their work impinged upon relatively small and specific problems that contributed to poverty and identified the best solutions through carefully designed field experiments conducted in several low and middle income countries over the course of more than two decades. The fieldwork led to very successful public policy recommendations and transformed the field of development economics. To Professor Banerjee's credit are several articles and books, including Poor Economics, which won the Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year and Good Economics for Hard Times, both co-authored with Professor Duflo. Sir, we are very honored, grateful, and humbled to have you with us today. And we are really looking forward to your illuminating talk on breaking out of the poverty trap which is also your most contributing area of academic interest based on years of contributing research on poverty alleviation in developing countries. A big, very big warm welcome to you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to, as uh, Fahad knows, I was not hard to persuade. I was happy to be. I, I've, I also known PID for many years. Uh, many must be, I'm going to say 30 years or 40 years, something like that, 40 years. I think when I started first studying economics, I, I would encounter articles by people at PID. So it's been a, it's a place that has always been in my mind and I'm delighted to join you uh, online now and maybe one day in person too. Um, 
Thank you for thank you for inviting me. I'm going to talk about uh, some work, uh, sort of ongoing, very long-term project on this question of, you know, what what makes the poor poor, um, and sometimes this slide technology doesn't work. Um, okay, I'm going to. Um, so I think that really uh, two two distinct theories. One is that poor are born the, that way. They you know, and if you you know, temporarily boost them, that boost will fade away because you know you can help them, but you know they can't help themselves. So in some sense, there is no way to no way to really permanently improve them. Or the alternative view is that they are poor because they are poor or their parents were poor, meaning that uh, they, they, have, um, they have somehow the fact of being poor now uh, creates conditions that makes them hard to get out, makes it hard for them to get out of poverty. Um, I often try to tell uh, the story or the behind this by contrasting two diag diagrams. Um, one is uh, this one, uh, you, 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 and what is what's here is if you think of it as being the on the horizontal axis is the uh, wealth level or the capital level or the human capital level of the of the uh, person in today or in this generation and think of it as generational it's easier maybe to think about it and the the and what's on the vertical axis is the his or her child's uh, level of wealth and of course these are kind of very abstract ideas nobody lives for one year nobody's wealth is constant but nonetheless it helps and and if the relationship between your wealth today and your child's wealth tomorrow is of the shape the, the concave curve uh, that's in that figure then then what what will happen is that you know you know when you are very poor when k is very small close to zero uh, you know kt plus one is going to be higher than the red line the red line represents um, the uh, where kt kt is equal to kt plus one so kt plus one is bigger than kt but then as you get somewhat richer the the improvements stop at some point you just stop and if you started richer than that you you know your children actually become poorer than you and it all converges that's one story that is um would say that you know this is this is something that's given to you. There's no no escape from from this. You can temporarily be away from your uh, where you are headed, but in a sense, there is only one stable point, K star. The alternative is a figure like that, which we sometimes call an S-shaped curve, um, and in that curve, uh, what's striking about that curve is that uh, there there is while again there is a k double star which is kind of like the k star where you know where you would stop uh, there's also a place called k star 
which I call Questar here, where you would actually be plunging into further poverty. So in other words, if you don't, if you don't cross Questar, then you start to head towards zero because you are poor, therefore your children are even poorer and so on. But if you cross K-star, then while you're poor, your children are a little bit richer, and so you escape from poverty. So that's that's a, a very metaphorical description of how you know you could have both, depending on the shape of the of that curve, of the transition curve, and uh, and that could have long-term and dramatic consequences for people's lives. In particular, if people people get um somehow if you in in this particular case what's different from the previous one is that if if i take someone who's below k star and i give him or her something her uh, i'll say her for more often because of what you'll see what i'll talk about in a bit her something then actually she'll start she'll permanently, she'll get, end up at K double star. If I give her enough to cross K star, she'll end up at K double star and would permanently ex escape from extreme poverty. So that, that the question is, which world do we live in? And the reason we want to know that is that, uh, let me just say one more thing. Reason we want to know that is partly it just tells us, you know, what does this mean to, what does it say about, you know, kind of people the poor are it it changes our relationships to them it give, but also it it tells us that you know a one-time gift might have long-term benefits so it justifies a policy intervention that in the short run could be expensive but in the long run could be quite quite cheap and productive there's a vast literature on this and i don't want to um, spend too much time on it, uh, but it's it's uh, and this the stories are of the kind. You know, one class of stories is, you know, what we're trying to justify in each of these stories is why would that curve look like that rather than like that? Okay, and the and the reason it might look like this is that when you're very poor, maybe it's very hard to. Uh, do anything because you just don't have enough to eat. You don't have enough energy. You're just kind of stuck in being unproductive because you, you know, so you were unproductive. Therefore, you are poor. But now that you're poor, you can't afford food, and therefore you're unproductive. This is what's called the nutrition-based poverty trap, much studied in the 1950s and 60s, um, and. Uh, then there's debate on whether this is the right story or not. I'm not going to spend time on it. Then there's a, a slightly different story which says that, you know, you know actually uh, to get out of dire poverty, you need to make an investment, not in your health, but in, let's say, in a small business or in a, in a, uh, in your farm or, a, you know, start a shop. And those, each of those things, you can't start a shop without a room. You can't start, start a, a farming business with, without some land. And each of those, it takes some investment and that investment takes money. And if you don't have money, you don't make this investment. And then basically there's not much you can do. So that's a, that's a version of, of the same story, which is that a min, there's a minimum scale required for investment. 
there's a third set of stories, which is that um, uh, when you're poor, you're really allergic to risk because you know you know you could be really wiped out and starve. Or and so what people might have suggested is the idea that maybe when you're very poor, you don't want to take any risks. But if you don't want to take any risks, then you're only left with very unproductive things, and therefore you stay poor. So all of these ideas are are not unreasonable. More recently, there's uh, there's an interesting work, for example, by Mulay Nathan and Shafir, uh, developing the idea that um, people who spend a lot of time worrying about how to make ends meet uh, are often psychologically handicapped to, to do anything very productive because you're constantly you know, all your intellectual space is taken up by by these uh, demand to, you know, just find that, you know, that two, two, two rupees to to pay for this or the 200 rupees to pay for that or the, you know, 2000 rupees to pay for that. But like, it's not very large amounts of money, but those amounts of money that you don't have. And that precludes being able to make anything more long term. Now, that these stories, I mean, uh, some will resonate with you, some others maybe not, but um, certainly these are stories that you know probably all of you thought about at some point. How does one know? And so there is um, the question is, uh, you know, how does one test whether poverty traps are real? And one idea that people have tried and we have tried is. Uh, to ask whether a one whether a one-time shock has long-term effects. If I give you, um, you know, in this particular case, a positive shock, I give you a gift of some some assets. Does that have durable effects? Now, of course, there is a philosophical question here, which is, what is durable? Uh, is how long is long? And I'm not going to have any great answer to it. I'll show you results. What ten? 10 minutes, 10 years after, after, but you know, 10 years is not 100 years. So it, it just, so I, I said essentially uh, this, this already, so I will skip this. Talk about a program, um, this program that I'll show you I'll, the results, uh, in program that was implemented more or less exactly at the same time in multiple countries, including Pakistan. Uh, and uh, there were there randomized control trials in, in multiple countries at the same time. What do I mean by that? I mean that uh, these are people were uh, randomly chosen people or villages were randomly chosen to receive uh, uh, people in those villages or just people were randomly chosen to receive uh, assets. Um, yeah, go ahead. Hello. I think somebody raised Mr. Please, Aghar. Please, okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just keep going. We'll have questions at the end. Okay. So they were given uh, assets uh, um, at uh, at some point, just gift of assets. And then uh, the question was, does this have durable effects on the 
on the lives of, of people. These were usually done as large-scale social experiments, including in Pakistan, uh, where uh, a random group of people were given the assets uh, and a random control group were not given the assets and then we followed them to see what happens. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the results from everywhere, but focus on the results from India and then on Bangladesh, because they are the, we have data for the longest period of time. So the program is from BRAC, which is a Bangladeshi NGO, it's targeted to the poorest of the poor. <coughs> uh, they get an asset, they get some training, and some handholding, handholding meaning just, you know, you can do it, assurance that you can do it, just sort of emotional help and some temporary cash assistance, usually lasting, you know, six months when, you know, before you, you get an asset, but an asset is often like a cow, but once you have a cow, but the cow doesn't yet give milk. So therefore you need some something to get by. And so they gave them some, temporary small amount of money as well. I'll tell you a little bit about how much it costs and things like that later. So the theory is very much that they people own more assets, therefore they have um, something to do. They work longer hours, they earn more, they're happier. That's the theory. Let's see what happens. So I, I'll tell you a little bit, as I said, uh, about uh, evidence from um, the multi-country study. Um, Bangladesh is not in this one because they they decided to separate the study not for no particularly, you know, there's no conflict there. It was just they preferred that. Uh, but you can see that consumption after year two, consumption is significantly higher in five of the six countries. It's not higher in Honduras, but in all the other countries, it's higher. Um, and then there were different things that were measured in different countries. And the same is true in year three. Um, you get uh, consumption is higher, uh, income is higher in multiple countries, etc. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, more detail about the Indian program, uh, partly to, and then I'll tell you a little bit about uh, the other programs as well, Ghana, Ghana and Bangladesh in particular. Um, so in India, you can basically, the people who were chosen for this program happen to be the, the, the poorest of the poor. They were actually, um, They were actually typically women who were earned their living by begging. They were beggars in their in villages, and they were identified by the villagers as being the poorest in their village. So it was very much, a, a, you know, I don't think there was much disagreement. I was part of that process. I saw there was not much disagreement who the people are, um, and they were, as I said, there was a randomized control trial when you compare compare these people with the control group, uh, both consumption and income per head about 30% higher. Um, and that's that's sort of the same uh, rate roughly at one and a half years after you, they got the asset three years after, seven years after, et cetera. Um, 
uh, in terms of consumption and in income, actually the impact is smaller at the beginning, but grows faster. Um, similar results in Bangladesh. I'm going to uh, just some timeline. Started in 2007. The last data is from 2018. Uh, skip that. Uh, you probably can't read this. It's a little too detailed. Uh, so I'm going to. Uh, the only point I wanted to make is that uh, you see we have data. There's too much data here. This probably uh, the, the you have data either at uh, you know at what we call at 18 months, three years, seven years, and 10 years, and the and in each case you know uh, you have a, a substantial increase in per capita consumption, food security, etc., um, and people are happier. The physical health is better. The mental health is better. Um, there's less illness. They're more able to do the activities of the, the daily living, etc. Self-reported happiness. Uh, there's less um, less people missing meals. There, there's more durables in the households, um, etc. I I I I, then I realize that those tables are not readable, so let me not spend time on it. Uh, but the key now, here's where things get a bit more complicated. So good news all around um, and steady good news. And I'll come back to the point about steady good news. I'll show you some figures in a, in a bit. Um, now, this is happening in an environment where the control group is also getting richer. Um, so the control group are people who didn't get the asset, but they're also getting richer. It's not that they are not, uh, they're just stuck uh, without the asset. The macroeconomy is you know, growing during this period, the Indian economy is growing reasonably fast. And as a result, uh, even the poorest, and there are a bunch of new social programs being extended. Uh, and as a result, the poor, even the poorest people are benefiting, their earnings are going up. Um, so it's not that, that the people who got the asset are the only people who are doing better. The control group is doing better. The point is that the, the people who get the assets, uh, you might imagine that once the, you know, the economy does well, that that takes care of the problem. And therefore the difference between the the people who get the asset and the people who don't vanishes. The opposite happens actually during the fast growth years. We see a divergence between the con con treatment and control group. The, the people who have the, have the asset actually take better advantage of the macroeconomic, the better macroeconomic situation. Mm, I'll, now, uh, this is this is uh, the uh, I promise that you'll see some real date numbers and th this is maybe more legible. <coughs> you can see that the 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 between year three and year seven that's roughly between 2011 and 2000, 2010 and 2014 something like that. Uh, this is a period where the Indian economy is growing fast and you can see that the red people the control people are now 
are also growing, but they're not growing quite as fast as the people who the treated people. And that's still true at year 10, uh, but the, this, the rate of growth now is the same. Um, that's true of food security, uh, income, you see exactly the same pattern. The income growth accelerates between year three and year, year seven. This is, as I said, the economy is also growing well. Now to understand what's happening, um, maybe I'll show you a little bit more data. Uh, and it's in that context worth saying that when you tell these stories of poverty traps, of course they're stories. And when you tell a story, you usually pick one example. You say that, you know, they start a business, that business then makes them richer and therefore they can keep funding their business and they can stay richer. In fact, interestingly, because we track these people over 10 years, we can see that that's not exactly what happens. What happens is actually people get the initial opportunity that makes them do one thing, that opens up another opportunity, they shift to a different thing and over time, they, what they are doing is actually shifting, even though every time they are moving to some something else that's good for them. So at the beginning, uh, treated incomes are higher at 18 months, uh, and that's mostly coming from livestock. Why livestock? Because most of the people, they were given a choice of assets. Some people chose like things to build, uh, make a store, but most people just chose livestock, uh, cows or goats. And, and that made them uh, richer and you don't see any difference in, in wage income. By year three to seven, uh, year three and seven, the, you start to see that they have now diversified from livestock, the, you know, the, by year seven, you can see that, uh, or even year three, the, the livestock income, the extra income they get from livestock is just dominated by their business income. Now they've started other non-livestock businesses with the money they got from the initial push. And that's the dominant one. But interestingly, um, by, uh, by the uh, time the uh, you get into year, um, you know, the business uh, year ten. Now, in fact, the uh, actually by year seven already you start to see the pattern, which is that wage income. These people are are now uh, these families are now earning. The, the big advantage they have, this is the difference between the treatment and the control, is from wage income. Now, where do they get the wage income? Well, now these, these women were, had children who were, you know, eight, 10 years old, 10 years ago, uh, now they're 20, they've all migrated to wherever, wherever there, is, there are jobs and they're sending money back. So, that's true of the control group. They're also migrating. That's the reflection of the macroeconomy doing better. But even more importantly, uh, the, the treatment group are not actually still keep their advantage. Um, and in particular, this, 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 the nearest big city for this experiment was Kolkata. And what you see is that as the as the uh, people as people get richer, they're more and more likely to uh, to migrate, but they're less likely to migrate to 
to uh, to Kolkata, which is the nearest city, they are going to further further away, looking for more opportunities. Now, the other other um, as I said. Um, uh, you know, so uh, other things that happen with it. I told you that part of the story is that when you get, if you don't have an asset, there's nothing to work with. They're still working harder. They're working more hours. Um, if you take these numbers and you do cost benefit analysis, um, the total cost in two, 2018 USD at purchasing power parity. So that's a lot of corrections. Um, uh, this was, I would say, about $400 at cur current exchange rates. So that's uh, that's uh, uh, with uh, in in 2007. Um, about half of that money was went to the these people either as an asset or as a as income support. The rest came for as salaries for people who were doing the handholding and organizing savings collection and things like that. Um, if by 10 years, it's about 400%, the rate of return on this investment is about 400%. And, and if, you, if you project the three-year results we have in Pakistan, for example, uh, they're not quite as spectacular, but still it would be, uh, you know, the, the benefits are about 124% of the, of the cost. So, substantial uh, gain. Uh, what's also reassuring is that it's not just that some people benefit, let's say the poorest of the poor or the, or the richest of the poor, everybody benefits. These are the percentiles. And you can see that basically the mm, consumption goes up in every single quartile, uh, quintile. Every single quintile consumption is higher. And so you, you, you see the uh, the gains are not concentrated. Uh, I mean, they're a little more, the, the people who get the, uh, who are at the top gain a bit more, but everybody gains. Skip these figures, too many of them maybe. Um, and you can see that the, this is by baseline consumption level. Uh, so the, for the poorest people gain, but also the uh, richest people gain. And uh, that's true of income as well. So it's a, it's a very broad-based uh, gain. Now, let me say, uh, uh, take another five minutes to tell you a little bit about, uh, about what else, uh, you know, how, what else have we learned from other other places? So from Bangladesh, one thing we, we, we they did in Bangladesh, the study in Bangladesh was very, very nice study published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics is they, you know, they track it till about year four. Uh, they show that even they make an argument that they're durable effects even up to, up to seven years. Most importantly, what they, they have is very detailed data on the, on the um, on the uh, on the initial assets, and one thing that they and also at the final assets, the asset data is really very uh, nice. And what they're plotting here is really the first figure I showed you, which is 
KT and KT plus one. So assets in year 2007, assets in year 2011. You can see that basically the shape looks really like an S. At the very bottom, it's it kind of is flat, then it goes up steeply, then it flattens again. And that it, it suggests that there is, you know, the the it is really that if you had a little more assets, then you 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 do get the extra benefit, and that's what propels people out of a poverty trap. So that's very consistent with a poverty trap. And uh, yeah, and consistent with that story, uh, we see that the distribution of productive assets is bimodal, meaning some people. This is a distribution, meaning, you know, uh, the the set of people. This is, on the horizontal axis is the is how much assets they have. On the vertical axis of is the density. How what's the probability you fall into that particular bin? And uh, this is treatment and control. Treatment people have a bit more uh, of the high assets, uh, of, like. Between six and eight. Um, more, what's striking is that this this is bimodal, meaning some people really seem to be stuck at zero, um, and then there's not many people around two, but a, a lot of people around six. So bunch of people are on zero, bunch of people are on six. And that's exactly the pattern that we were seeing in that curve I first showed you. People either will head to zero or head to a, a more decent place. A second question that you may want to be wondering about is do we need the whole package? The package of, you know, there's handholding, there is savings collection, uh, there is, you know, people get the asset. So, uh, now in Ghana, we did uh, a version of the same thing, but instead of doing the handholding and the savings collection, we just gave them an, a, a goat, a set of goats, and then we followed them. And that doesn't seem to have durable effects, nor does have access to savings. So it seems like it is important that we do all of these things, or at least that one study suggests that. Uh, a final question you may wonder about is what is driving it? Is it the asset? Is it more risk-taking or the psychological boost? Remember, a lot of uh, the resources are spent with this handholding. People coming to your house saying you can do it. It's, you know, when people get disheartened, to encourage them, we set up an experiment in Ghana where we uh, we provided all the inputs and we removed all the risk. So all they had to do was just, you know. Um, yeah, so you know it's true that when you get the asset, you're richer. But we did, we we, and therefore you could invest. But we we provided the investment, so we provided all the materials to produce cloth bags, and we give them a fixed price, so they had no risk. And what is striking is that the people who have high level of benefits from the this program are much more productive per hour. Now think about what that is saying. That's saying something that we usually, uh, you know, if you take basic economics, it's so we sort of claim uh, the opposite. We say that you know, as people get richer, the income effect would make them less productive because they have less in incentive to work hard. Uh, 
we see the opposite here. We see that the people get richer, they're actually more enthusiastic and they work more. And in fact, they do the harder the task, the better they do. So it's, it is as if the having this extra wealth encourages them to be more productive. So in conclusion, uh, it's possible to durably increase earnings, at least for these very poor people. It's support for the view that poverty traps are real. And clearly it's whether or not it's a poverty trap, meaning they're, they're, they're permanently trapped in or they permanently get out, or maybe it'll take after 30 years, it all becomes the same. It's very important for the design of social, social policy because it tells us that maybe sometimes by giving people small amounts of help, we don't really help them. Maybe a one-time big push might be very valuable and uh, very productive. So I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, I, I, I stopped. My mic, sorry, I hadn't unmuted my mic. Thank you very much, Abhijit. I think that is a very good overview of uh, your work, although there's far more um, that you've written about and far more available. Um, so I'm thank going to you. encourage people to go into it a lot more. But thank you, that is very kind. A couple of questions that come to my mind is that you're absolutely right that the poor people are besotted with both um, the pressure of life as well as the risk of life. And I think they take far more risk in our societies than otherwise. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you've separated the two, but um, how is it that these people, if they're given a cash transfer and uh, you see that the, the, that the, uh, the effect lasts for very long, up to 10 years. So it, it is, is, is the fact that you've covered the risk or do some people, because I've seen a lot of poor people, casual empiricism, who do seem to get some kind of a cash transfer. For example, if you think about it, there is a famous committee system where they collect money and then they try and do something with it, but they carry a far, uh, this is again, just my hypothesis, they carry a far degree of risk than the well-off person does because somehow, uh, and this brings me to the point, which I think is critical, where we're going to talk to David Robinson tomorrow, that uh, the story that uh, Samoglu and Robinson um, have is that they are, um, that, that it's the institutions that matter. So your work, what light does it shed on institutions? We know, for example, especially living in our part of the world that the old colonial institutions are working in strange ways to impede or by the poor or to exclude them. So is, is, what light would you, and how would you compare that work of institutions with your work and what can we learn from the two put together? So, I, I mean, we've written actually a lot about this question. Mm -hmm. I would say that I think that I'm, and we make a distinction, we have a whole section on this in our book, Poor Economics, between institutions with a capital I and institutions with a little I. And I feel like there's too much from, I mean, Jim and Daron's work, uh, I think overstates the importance of the capital I's. I think BRAC is an institution. It's not an institution in their sense, but it's a, it's had a 
stunningly huge effect on Bangladesh, mm -hmm. uh, both by you know innovate being innovative and by being positive and by being uh, you know encouraging of people and trying to solve their problems. So it's in other words. Uh, it, even though it cannot doesn't qualify as an institution in their sense, I think it to to, to sort of den, deny that it's a critical institution in the Bangladeshi context is I think uh, silly. So I I, I I would say that what is uh, the, dis, the to me the key distinction is between um, between 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 their work and ours is we 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 think that there are many many little institutions uh some are big actually like brac but you know but there are many others and they each player have a role to play and they solve a specific problem and then sometimes you get lucky and things kind of gel together and that has a big surge and in other cases you you know one you do locally you do good but maybe you can't solve the problems the whole economy but i don't think of the there this all or nothing distinction as being very useful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, or at least not useful enough I appreciate that. Now, we have a very large poverty reduction program or a social safety net. And I think it's trying to do the kind of thing that you're suggesting. We give a cash transfer. And uh, there are related with cash transfers, there are also human capital credit and other intervention that we are planning. In fact, it's quite a sophisticated enterprise, and uh, the World Bank and many other people are appreciative of it. Um, but uh, the problem is that even though this program is working, poverty still seems to be increasing. Now, obviously, you were talking micro, we are talking macro here, that we've got a large safety net program, which is well appreciated, but poverty still increases. Would you have some ideas on... Uh... I actually don't know that that's... Uh, as, a, as a fact, I think poverty in Pakistan has fallen. Maybe not in the last two years. I, I I don't think we have data for the last catastrophic years that we've have been having recently. But overall, the last for, for even I mean starting uh, in the you know even though growth has slowed uh, for a period, poverty kept falling. I've sort of seen the Pakistan numbers. I don't think it is true that uh, as measured. You know, whatever. It's not a perfect measure, and you might say we are not being ambitious enough. But I think perceived poverty is very different from real poverty, not real, um, kind of physically measured poverty. Because I think it's uh, perceived poverty is often about, you know, relative standards. People expect more, and I think that's reasonable. I, I think people should expect more. But I, I think that if you take a constant measure, Mm -hmm. Poverty rates have fallen in Pakistan also a lot from 1980 to today. Poverty rates are much lower. Um, so I, I think that there is. Uh, and uh, so now that I should also say that this is the program I'm emphasizing is not just any cash transfer program. It's what's important about it is, is it's a lumpy program, meaning you get one time a lot of money but you get it one time with a lot of um, lot of help during that period. For a, about a period of six months, you get a lot of handholding, a lot of attention. Uh, you you are there's a there's an attempt to make you self-sustaining. Um, so it's not just any program. And I'm not claiming that just any program works. In fact, the the message of the poverty trap uh, literature is that 
small amounts of money won't do anything because you'll still fall back. You need enough to get you launched. And if that's true, then in a sense, uh, the, the programs that give, continue to give people small amounts of money don't actually have rel relatively low rates of return. Whereas a program that has a one-time uh, focused large uh, transfer actually has higher rates of return. So I, I, I would say that that distinction is important to keep in mind. That's part of the reason why I go through the logic of these things. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Fahad, do you have any questions from the floor? Uh, yes, sir. We, we have a number of four questions from the go floor. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first question is related. Um, it's been asked by Ms. Sundar Salini. She's a researcher at Pide. And she has asked this question, particularly in the context of, um, sir, your um, research on the question of land and the distribution of land. So she has asked that how does the distribution of assets, such as land, affect poverty alleviation, particularly in the context of debates on the importance of land reforms in developing countries? Yeah, so that's an excellent question and actually goes back to uh, a bit the question that uh, um, Mr. Huck was asking, um, which is that, you know, what is the overhang of colonialism? And I, I think land is one place where the overhang of colonialism is massive in the sense that the colonists had their own theory of what was the right way to organize land. And they had, in particular, they had the theory of the, you know, the the yeoman farmer, they sort of trans, transplanted, uh, transplanted uh, British uh, ag agrarian history on India and just said, this is, we're going to have yeoman farmers and they concentrated land on purpose. And so, and as a result, a lot of people were left with very little land. And I think, uh, I think there is the question of non-viable farms or almost non-viable farms. If you look at, uh, and this is probably true in Pakistan as well, that if you look at farming households, less than 50% of their earnings, much less than 50% now, comes from farming. Uh, they come from migration, they come from working nearby in a brick kiln, in, a, in something, in, uh, you know, in government programs. You take the entire package of earnings. Uh, out of that, a small, only a small fraction comes from farming, even for farming households. So I think we, we clearly have this overhang of, uh, of farms that were sort of uh, you know, land that was too concentrated for for some people, uh, in some people's benefit, and then a lot of people who were left with very marginal amounts of land, and that's got worse because population has grown. So, it, I think that 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 remains a challenge, you know, all over South Asia, but in particular, I think uh, in India and Pakistan. I think. There is another question. Um, actually, there are a number of questions on the microfinance. Uh, so Dr. Shujat Paduk from Pied is asking that microfinance is considered as one of the plausible ways for people to get out of poverty trap. But there is a whole lot of literature which supports it. And there are argumentative debates against it as well. What is your take on it? Or do countries need other interventions along with microfinance? So we actually did... Um several randomized control trials of microfinance. And I would say there are two messages. 
The negative message is that for the average borrower, microfinance doesn't make them any richer. And I think that's now well established from actually several randomized control trials. I think there are seven of them, uh, which we put together in an issue of, uh, of American Economic Journal applied from different countries. And you basically see the same pattern. The second, which is also interesting, is that for some households, uh, which tend to be households which already had a business before they got microfinance. So they didn't start up a business because they got it, but before already had it. For them, you do see a long-term effect. So we've tracked this household for 10 years now, and you do see big effects on them. So in other words, microfinance benefits people who are already able to manage the financial mar markets and financial transactions. And for them, this can generate income growth for the rest. It's not that they make them poorer. It's just they don't even invest it. Very little of the microfinance money, in fact, we find is invested in businesses. Most of it is actually invested in household assets, which is fine. You know, when I buy a house, I borrow money. So and that's normal. And so if they want to fix your house, you borrow money uh, and you pay by your labor earnings. And that's that's what I do. I don't see any reason why people shouldn't do it. But I think it's not going to make you richer. That didn't make me richer by borrow by buying a house. I didn't get richer. I just had a house. And I think that's in some ways the very shape of a lot of microfinance, a lot of people's lives is that this is a cheaper loan than other loans. And therefore I borrow and I I fix my house, I uh, buy a refrigerator, I, um, I get my son married, whatever, you know, there are different priorities people have. And I don't see a reason why that's, that's not a criticism of microfinance. It's just saying it's a financial instrument for often fun, fine, um, financing lumpy consumption. Um. So there's another question by Mr. Uh, Dr. Zahid Asghar from Kadiyazm University. It's on, is it microfinance, is it micro support to bring people out of poverty trap or is it the macroeconomic growth, which is sustainable macroeconomic growth, which is important? Are there countries which manage to bring people out of poverty through RCT findings? Okay, the, that's a, I mean, I think that maybe I, I, w I would say that, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, whether they found, got it to, let me answer part of the question. RCD findings seems pushing, pushing the point. I mean, I, I would say yes, but I don't want to uh, sort of fight that battle. I think that what I, is absolutely true is that if you think about Latin America, he growth in the, years between 1995 and 2015 was, and especially 2010 was moderate, but the amount of uh, poverty reduction and reduced reduction in inequality was massive. And the reason it happened was a series of social programs. So, you know, it's not that there was, growth was not happening. I think growth is important because it often funds social programs, but growth also, autonomously often increases inequality by itself. And, and what social programs do is balances that. So I, I think it's, there's a role for growth, obviously, I, you know, who's, who, who could deny that. But I, I think that the idea that growth by itself will fix these problems 
is simply not true. If you look at what has raised uh, rural wages in India, uh, you know, you get a substantial boost from growth, but a substantial growth for boost from the, the, the national rural employment guarantee as well. Those are about the same order of magnitude, actually. So there is another question. Before COVID-19, there was a lot of discursive and political debate on how China succeeded at eradicating poverty. Can you please explain how our cities provide an explanation of poverty alleviation in China? Well, I think, again, I, I think this is the same question as the last one, which is, is, is it all macroeconomy or not? And, and I, I think that the Chinese actually is interesting. China is actually the one country that seems to be very experimental. And so if you look at their design of policies, they try something, they collect data. If it fails, they stop it. And that's been built into their system from the beginning. Deng Xiaoping started by having a certain set of experimental villages where he, he opened up agriculture to see what happens. And I think that's a, it's always been the case. And so I, I think that, uh, I think it's very uh, important to recognize that the, the Chinese uh, didn't simply say that let growth happen. They were very activist in solving, you know, how, how to provide better insurance to farmers. They did a bunch of experiments. They decided this is the best way to do it, and they did it. And the, what's good about them is more that they take uh, results from what they their studies very seriously, and they scale. And I think what is really importantly different about China is this willingness to you know, give up policies that fail, take policies that succeed, and run with them. And I think that's critical in, in understanding China's success. Okay. Do you have any more? Uh, so there are many more questions. Um, but, uh, Asar Osama, can I ask? Osama, Asar Osama, Osama send something? Do you have it? Okay, just pick one or two because I, I don't think we'll keep Abhijit for long. So okay. just pick sure. one or two quickly. Uh, okay, sure. Um, so... Uh, uh, Professor Alia Khan is asking about, does the quality of public service and infrastructure provision in the poor communities interact with the impact of the treatment? It's an excellent question. I don't know the answer. It would be, an, it would be it's a very, very good question and one, and one that deserves an answer, but I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, go ahead, Fahad. Last question. Mm. Yeah. So, Omar Khalid is asking, has the effect of life cycle events and other exogenous shocks been also tested in your study? So we do track people, uh, the shocks to people and, uh, but it's, so if the question is, do we, does it, protect against shock. So I'll tell you another study where we looked at that much more carefully. And it's sort of interesting. So the shock we looked at was COVID-19, the studies in Kenya. Uh, and we look at whether people are receiving a, a, a transfer, uh, whether they actually are protected, how much they're protected against the shock. And the answer is actually 
only, only a limited amount. And the reason is interesting. So they are protected somewhat. They're less likely to miss meals, less likely after uh, COVID-19 shuts down the whole economy, they are better off. But they're not that much better off because they had invested the money that they got in businesses. And the Therefore, they lost more income than everybody else because, of course, once your economy shuts down, you have a business. If you don't have a business, you don't lose so much. Uh, if you have a business, your business is completely uh, closed. You're losing money. And so, in a sense, the impact of the social protection, when you take something very large and unexpected like uh, COVID-19, uh, social protection programs as designed as a, as a kind of a fixed transfer, don't actually react to it. And therefore, they, you know, if, if you have uh, made, if, you, if the, it's the transfer is meant to encourage you to make investments, but once you make investments, you're kind of committed to them. And then uh, the fact that you have, uh, you know, the, one of the shocks is actually um, uh, makes it a bigger problem. Okay, well, I have I have to say goodbye because my wife has to give a talk starting at four, and and our internet doesn't take two talks very well to, together. That, that's why I was trying to bring this to a close. We promised you to take an hour of your time. We've taken that. Thank Professor you, Banerjee. It's wonderful of you to take your time out and talk to us. And please come to Pakistan when COVID is over. We will invite you for a special lecture. Um, you must come. I think we need more of a dialogue between Indian and Pakistani intellectuals. I keep telling this to all people like you, and we should have more of you visiting us. We will welcome you always. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you. you. It's been a great lecture on poverty uh, reduction, which we needed, and we need to really sort out uh, the issues that you've told us about, and we will do a lot more research, follow-up research on this at PAID. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.